On this episode of the Fifth Estate podcast, it's a two-person episode. Um, I did a bit of a, uh, I won't say interview, it was more of a discussion uh, with Robin Tudor from Queensland, Australia. We talk about uh, the Wu flu, all things related to it, uh, touch on that um, big um, Voldemort drug that starts with an I, and a little bit of a dabble on why the vegan community is so... Um, so committed to the theory that the Wu flu is a zoonotic disease. So anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Here we are with Robin Tudor, who we're going to have a bit more of a, a discussion with uh, regarding all things Wu flu related and the uh, series of therapeutics that I call them, or what Robin's, uh, what she wants to call them is entirely up to her, but as you know that this is just my one. Uh, without boring everyone with a whole lot of details, I'll let Robin introduce herself and then we'll uh, get into the details of the episode. So, all yours, Robin. Thanks, Cameron. My name's Robin Tudor. Congratulations for pronouncing my pronouncing my name correctly. Very few people do. I am a naturopath, counsellor and certified lifestyle medicine practitioner. I've been in private practice for getting on for 26 years now. And I live on the Gold Coast, have done for the past three years. And before that, I lived in Sydney my entire life. And boy, am I glad that I left Sydney. My family left Sydney before uh, before the woo flu struck us. Oh, geez. I mean, yeah. Oh, thanks for that. I mean, I, mean, I grew up in Melbourne, moved to Queensland, spent 20-odd years in Queensland and came back down here for employment opportunities and all that. And mm. When I moved down, it was just when the Wu flu was popping up, and oh, good timing! Yeah, so um, moved the family down here, and the day that they've moved down, we've gone into lockdown. So it's just like, yeah. mm, so they've seen Melbourne at its worst. But anyway, um, mm. we'll skip all that now. Uh, let's have a chat about things now. Um, okay, let's having a look at your Substack. Um, thing you've got the omicron or omnicron omnicon um is the omnicon in reference to um president houseplant who called it a trend like a name from a transformers or is that uh, in reference <laughs> to the con well yes I, I mean a lot of people have been creatively rearranging um omicron obviously and 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 coming up with moronic and i see moron as as they played anagrams with with omicron which is which is rather entertaining uh, just just to point out to to those those who are sort of going full conspiracy theorist on this um omicron is is simply uh, I, I believe it's the 15th letter in the greek alphabet and so the variants of of SARS-CoV-2 have been named alpha beta you know gamma delta in line with the Greek alphabet, and they skipped over skipped over over new um, because it just sounds like new variants. Mm. <laughs> so that wasn't um, that 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 apparently wasn't going to fly. And then the next one after that is 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 xi. The next letter in the Greek alphabet is xi, which is spelled uh, X Y. But then that one was that one was a no go because of you know President Xi Jinping and the fact that G uh, spelled X I is a really common Chinese surname. So here we are with with Omicron. But yeah, as I was thinking, Omicron. What does that remind me of? 
Well, omni means, you know, like omnipresent, it means everything or all. And con is fairly self-explanatory. So, yes, the, the Omicron variant is is kind of, you know, part of this all-encompassing con or scan. And uh, let, let me... Let me also clarify my position here. I'm not saying uh, some people do claim that that SARS-CoV-2 has not been isolated and there is no virus. I, uh, to the best of my understanding, there is actually a virus, SARS-CoV-2. It did come um, out of a Wuhan lab, uh, thanks to tax, U.S. taxpayer-funded gain-of-function research. So I'm not in that camp that, that says the whole thing is a scam, as in there is no virus. As to the best of my ability to, to discern, there is actually a virus. It is causing a flu-like illness. However, the response to the emergence of this virus and the illness associated with it is the scam. Okay, this has nothing to do with public health. It does not conform with with public health principles or with any principles of of uh, management of respiratory epidemics. And so what we're seeing now is is a scam and the scam is all about eroding the the bulwarks of Western liberal democracy and getting people to you know willingly voluntarily out of fear of a virus to hand over uh, all of the, the hard-won uh, liberties that, that really are the bedrock of, of life in the West, life in Western democracies. Mm. Um, now, a couple of things that I, I want to, because you've, you've hit on a couple of things that I do want to raise with you and um, good that you started talking about them early. Um, so first of all, now I'm vegan. I've been vegan for nigh on 30 years or something like that. Um, it seems to be, dare I want to say, in the com- vegan community that they believe that it's a zoonotic disease um, and yet mm. if you turn around and say that it's not, that it came from a lab, okay, gain of function aside, so that's a, a, a totally different discussion uh, and everything like that and the involvement with the US um, and the NIH and NIAID or whoever they are and all those alphabets. Um what leads you to believe that it was um, created in the lab and then somehow got out? I'm not talking about, you know, how it actually got out because there's some debate mm. as whether it was a leak, whether it was a deliberate thing for the yeah. um, world military games that happened beforehand or whether the leak was before then because when the um, various militaries went over to exercise around there, when they went to Wuhan, the streets were empty. So there's some mm. debate whether, you know, it actually escaped before then. So I'm not talking about that. But just July, July seems to be, July or September seem, seem to be the, the dates that, you know, where, where the majority of, of opinion, well, sorry, that is, there's a fair bit of evidence that it was circulating from September and some evidence that it was actually circulating mm. from July. But yes, it, so you're you're talking about the wet market hypothesis, yes. right? And this this was what the, the Chinese government put forward, or the, you know, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. This is what was put forward very early on in the piece when the virus first emerged, when when there were initial news reports that there was this strange, you know, pneumonia-like illness that was occurring in Wuhan. And so the story that was put out there was that there was uh, some um, 
jumping of, of the virus from a bat to a pangolin or, you know, some, some strange mixture of animals and that that's where the virus emerged. Now, this is patently ridiculous uh, and we have multiple lines of evidence to, to suggest that this is ridiculous. Number one line of evidence is that the there was a, a, a what what we call a case series, which in the medical literature just means that uh, someone sends into a medical journal a record of the first you know five or ten or fifty or one hundred or however many cases of, of of a particular illness, and they write about you know what the characteristics of these people were. So from from uh, from this case series of the first, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like one hundred and fifty, maybe two hundred. Um, people who were hospitalised in Wuhan um, with SARS-CoV-2 infection. And around about half of them had no epidemiological linkage to the to the wet market in, in Wuhan. So in, in other words, they hadn't been there. They didn't know anyone who, who had been there. There was absolutely no way that you could trace them back to having, you know, uh, picked this virus up at the wet market. And when you're talking about the first, you know, couple hundred cases of, of a new illness, if half of them haven't been to the site, which supposedly was the origin of it, then that site is clearly not the origin of it. So that was the first piece of evidence. Now, the second piece of evidence is that there have been tens of thousands, I believe it's 80,000 animals that have been sampled, you know, in the area around Wuhan. Uh, that is, you know, various secretions have been taken from them. They've been swabbed to see if they have any SARS-CoV-2 in them. And not a single one of those swabs has come back positive. The, the, there were no bats being sold at the Wuhan wet market. They did not sell bats. The nearest bat cave to Wuhan is a 1,000 miles away. So there, there simply is not a way that that wet market could have been the origin of this, uh, of this new virus. And also, uh, if you want to go a little deeper, virologists have actually analysed the, the sequence of SARS-CoV-2 and there are a couple of what are called inserts. So these are like short sections of code, you might say. A virus is just a genetic code. It's, it's just like a you know sequence of, of genetic instructions for, for building a protein. And several of those segments of genetic code have never been found in, in any coronavirus before. So that's pretty obvious indications that, that this virus was genetically manipulated by humans in a laboratory setting. And then there's a whole trail of evidence, a massive trail of evidence, including email dumps um, that were gained under freedom of information uh, laws by a couple of different organisations, including US Right to Know, and then a more recent one. And I can't remember the the uh, organisation that, that obtained the latest email dump under freedom of information. But look, long story short, there's a very, very long trail of evidence that indicates that exactly this kind of work, messing around with coronaviruses specifically in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, specifically in a, se a sector of that that deals exclusively with coronaviruses, this has been done for, for, for several years. So evidence in favour of a zoonotic uh, origin of, of this virus, zero. Ev evidence in favour of it being of laboratory origin, very, very convincing. And, and that's where I'm leaning to. Um, and, I mean, there was a thing on our ABC, um, I think Voice of America or something like that, where they've interviewed someone who has indicated that his evidence indicates that it was... 
um, and animal origin and all that sort of stuff. Um, honestly, I tuned out once he started talking to that and, and lost interest in it. So um, I'm not going to reference that. But going back to that, so why do you think the, the vegan community, and I'm, I'm using that term loosely, and um, considering that everything in the vegan community has always been about don't trust the government, the government lies, so they've lied to us about... Um, how good animal products are for you. They've lied to us about the safety standards. They've lied to us about the conditions they've kept. They're, they're kept in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I know it's it's probably outside of, of the scope of what you're looking at. But you know, just on you know your feeling within itself is why is the vegan community being so keen to um, to, to swallow this line and then all of mm. a sudden blindly trust the government yes the government's there we've got to take these series of therapeutics because the government's looking after us it is it is bizarre isn't it it is really really bizarre because as you say uh vegans have quite rightly said look the government's pronouncements on you know for example what constitutes a healthy diet you know look at the australian dietary guidelines uh look how influenced they have been by by the animal agriculture industry so uh, vegans have have pointed this out. They've pointed out that uh, there is legislation that basically uh, classes uh, animal activists who say go into factory farms as as being terrorists. Yes, right. So so we have every reason not to trust the government line, or you might say the sort of official line on any of this. The most innocent explanation, and I think this applies to the vast majority of, of vegans. So the most innocent explanation for this. Um, limpet-like <laughs> clinging to the wet market narrative is that it many vegans seized on this as being yet another reason uh, for going vegan, okay? So it's like, oh, on top of environmental harms and and the obvious ethical issues with, with you know, raising animals for food and slaughtering them and the human health consequences as in, you know, diabetes and heart disease and all the rest of it, here's this other reason why people should go vegan and that reason is that you know, raising animals in the, or keeping animals in these conditions gives rise to zoonotic diseases. And so they seized on to that. And when the evidence for that, well, when it was revealed that there was no evidence for, for that position or that explanation of the origins of SARS-CoV-2, then they they just seem to all stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 and just we're not open to any other explanation. Now, the the most latest the, the latest revelation is that the closest uh, virus to SARS-CoV-2 is actually from bats that are native to Laos, which again is like uh, over a thousand miles from from Wuhan. I think it's further than that. And so uh, there's there's no evidence that these bats were actually trapped in in Laos and they were you know brought to to Wuhan. So I would still say, like, if you're an animal activist, there's still plenty to get hot and bothered about in terms of trapping these animals in the wild and then, you know, condemning them to to a, a life of confinement and uh, torture in a laboratory. Like, isn't isn't that as much of a reason to to get upset about this this uh, about this kind of research? I don't know. So so for the for the vast majority of vegans, I don't know why they have clung to this one particular narrative about SARS-CoV-2 originating from a wet market in Wuhan when they could just as equally 
get people interested in veganism by saying, look, you know, on, on top of raising animals for food, they're also torturing animals in these other ways. And the way that they're torturing animals can, can give rise to these, these viruses. Um, so, again, I'd say that's the innocent explanation. The, the rather less innocent explanation is that there has been a, an infiltration of the vegan movement. You might, you might say a sort of takeover of the vegan movement uh, by more corporate entities. And we've seen this particularly in the last few years as, you know, major corporations have recognised that vegan is trending and they can retool a lot of their, you know, disgusting, um, horrible junk food and make it vegan and sort of cash in on this, this trend of particularly younger people becoming vegan. And... So whether it's the the sort of Bill Gates backed you know fake meat um, drive, or whether it's just you know big corporations saying, oh look at us, we make vegan junk food, not just the the junk food you used to eat before you before you went vegan. There has been a a sort of um, there, there's been a um, yeah I would say an infiltration. Or perhaps a watering down of the original ethics or the original, uh, you might say, um, mental or social positioning of vegans. In other words, being vegan used to mean being pretty fringe, like, you know, uh, you were going to be the only vegan at the party. Um, uh, people wouldn't understand why you were vegan. Uh, you ate your broccoli and, and you made your own soy milk, that sort of thing. And now, now that veganism has become a lot trendier, uh, with that sort of moving veganism more into the centre, the uh, ethos of, of vegans as being more mm, independent-minded, I think that's getting eroded. And that's something that, that I've found too is, you know, um, I've within the vegan movement, um, I've been more on, on what you'd call the, the right side of it, as in, you know, on the political spectrum. Um, because I, I don't really subscribe to the whole socialist thing um, that mm. a lot of the vegans do. So, and this was something that really concerned me um, with all the draconian measures that they introduced in Victoria. Is that there were so many that were jumping out up and down, saying that's beauty, we're killing capitalism, we're doing this, and yet not realizing that yes, they're killing capitalism, but they're actually helping corporatism, um, which is almost coming into fascism by to yes. survive because it's the big corporates who can weather the storm. It's the, the big corporates that have um, been able to keep their pubs closed for, you know, what, 300, mm. you know, 200 and something days of, uh, for the last mm. 18 months and, and will survive it because they can trade off the losses, they can drop their staff, they can open up again with little staff. They've got the buying power to... Um, push the distilleries and alcohol producers and all that to get good prices or to even delay um, payments and everything like that. So they're, you know, this whole obsession with, yes, kill capitalism, but then what they're creating is a far worse beast than what capitalism ever was and yet it's, you know, it, it's just one of those things that that was completely baffling about the whole... Um, acceptance of the, um, you know, the, the more active and let, dare I call them um, the intersectionalist vegans and everything like that, mm -hmm. um, and then their lack of 
objection to the draconian laws that have passed mm. now um, and all that sort of stuff. No peeps out of them, but they're protesting because, you know, a couple of people had some effigies, which the union movement has done far load worse. The unionised students have done far far worse in the past um, mm. and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it, it, that, that just you're, baffles you're, me. Yeah. Um, you've boy, you've really raised some important issues there, and I I want to sort of hook up as as, as many as I can. So you're 100 percent right that that what what we've seen in the last um, nearly two years has been the most substantial transfer of wealth out of the hands of you know for want of a better term the ordinary person, whether that be an employee or a small business owner. So that wealth has been transferred out of the hands of little people, ordinary people, people like you and me, and into the the, the hands of the not not the one percent, but the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. And the, I mean, if any if anyone doubts that, just have a look at what has been happening. You know, the the kinds of. Um, record increases in the wealth of, of billionaires, uh, not just the tech billionaires, but there's been an absolute surge in the wealth of, of billionaires, not just in Western countries, but, but also in China. Actually, Chinese billionaires have had a significantly uh, greater increase in, in their wealth than, than billionaires in the West. So the idea that, that this is somehow killing capitalism is is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. Uh, and, and, and in fact, what we actually really don't have the operation of the free market in in Australia uh, or other Western democracies, and we haven't had for many years. What we have is crony capitalism, and crony capitalism does shade into corporatism, which, as you've correctly pointed out, corporatism is fascism. I mean, that's what Benito Mussolini said when asked to define what fascism is. He said, well, you could call it corporatism. So there's a merger between the corporation and the state. And this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing large corporate entities marching in lockstep with the government. And you are you are correct. The likes of, say, Big W or Bunnings or, um, you know, Coles or whatever, they can, they were allowed to keep their businesses open while small businesses were, were, were told that they had to, you know, they had to shut down. And even though we're supposedly reopening, you know, many of those businesses have not reopened. They're, they're, they're gone. They're lost forever. And then, of course, those who would like to reopen their business but either medically can't or don't want to get the experimental injection, they're not going to be allowed to trade anyway. Whereas the, the big employers, you know, the likes of Woolworths and Coles, for instance, can actually insist that all their staff be, be jabbed. And if you don't like it, well, take a hike because other people need a job. So uh, that, that's the first thing. The other thing I, I would say is that this attack on capitalism from vegans is really pretty silly when you think about it. Back when veganism was, was a, as, as I was saying before, it was a fairly fringe thing, who was it? Who actually provided um, foods that that vegans could eat? It was small entrepreneurs. It was yep. people who said, "Huh, not everyone wants to make their own soy milk, so we'll actually make soy milk and we'll sell it to you." Or some people would like uh, an alternative to the Christmas roast, so we'll make tofurkey. 
or we'll make, I don't know, vegan butter or whatever. All of this started out as small business owners, entrepreneurs. This is capitalism at its finest. People who have some imagination, they're prepared to work really hard, they see a gap in the marketplace, and they produce a, a product that people actually want to buy, yep. right? If no one wanted to buy tofu, they would have gone out of business. Yep, and and this is, you know, something that I've, I've been ranting about within the vegan discussions for years is that capitalism isn't the enemy. What's the enemy is here not. is that we live in a resource-based society rather than, um, and I might be getting in a bit zeitgeistist here, um, we, rather than living in a technology society, whereas we're, the, the, the economy that we're living in now is everything resource-based. So humans are a resource, the nat- uh, planet's a resource, um, unfortunately animals are a resource, everything is. So that's why everything has a cost. And it, it's unfortunately that capitalism is a product of the economy that we've got. So if we want to get rid of capitalism, we need to change the economy from being resource-based where... Um, for want of a better term, all these resources are exploited to a system where it's not where we rely on other things. And I'm not saying go down the soil and green path and, and everything like that, but it, it's <laughs> more that, you know, we do need, do need to be looking at um, creating uh, things that are more technology-based. So technology produces it, which, you know, going down that path, we may have to, you know, introduce the UBI, which has its own problems. So, it's it's very very complex, and for for everyone just to turn around and, and say you know the, dare I say the, the the Marxist vegans that are out there because I think that's what it is is to turn around and say you know um, veganism socialism good capitalism bad um, creates it into some sort of uh, uh, is it a false dichotomy um, it just doesn't look at the mm. complex nature of what's going on and. Yeah, I, I think I think we actually really need to be uh, careful of, of using words like capitalism. Uh, capitalism, you know, that term was coined by by Karl Marx, and Did not prior that. to that, the word capitalism, yeah, yeah, he it, it was not in existence before Marx coined it. And if you if you want things to get really interesting, find out who funded Karl Marx. You know, who actually paid for him to to live a a life of you know relative privilege when he had uh, basically almost zero declared income. That's a, that's a whole rabbit hole. Let's, let's, let's not go yes, down there for yes. a moment. Um, I'll leave that one for another story. episode. Yeah. Um, but if, if you, so the term that was used before that was, was the free market. Mm. And the, the free market has been given a bad name. But the free market simply means if I produce a product and you want it and you value my product and we agree on, on a fair exchange – then we're living in a free market. Now, as I said before, we actually, we have not been living in a free market for many, you know, maybe ever in Australia because there's always been crony capitalism from the get-go. That is particular uh, businesses that by dint of of, of getting some sort of government um, contract or some sort of, um, I suppose, uh, preferential deal, from the government, they're able to outmuscle their, their competitors and essentially, you know, set up cartels. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a free market. Uh, there was a there was a brief period 
in the history of the United States are really maybe 100 to 150 years where they had a relatively free market. And it just happens to have coincided with a period of, of, of greatest prosperity and also of, of basically zero inflation. And inflation is inflation is actually a, a form of taxation. People don't understand yeah, yeah, that, yeah. but inflation is a form of taxation and it disproportionately affects the poorest. So when inflation is going sky high, now what drives inflation? Inflation is, is driven primarily by uh, fiat currency, by the printing of, of money, which we're seeing, you know, here we're seeing mm. it in the US, we're seeing it throughout the West, where there's just this insane creation of money, uh, uh, creating money out of thin air, and that drives inflation. And, and so people see the, the the cost of the things that they need to survive in everyday life, their, you know, the building materials to build their houses, the food that goes on their table, the clothes that that that, that go on their backs and their kids' backs. Um, the, the cost of all of these is is rising due to inflation. And, and that inflation is driven by, you know, reckless money printing. I totally agree. And and I have a feeling that's why I didn't want to touch too much on the UBI, but that's where we're heading, and that's just gonna skyrocket inflation. Um I think the whole um, government subsidies of um, childcare and all that sort of stuff is increasing it. And, I'll, I'll, you know, mm. we've all got our thoughts on that, but I'll leave that for a, a different episode um, if you're willing to come back once this one is finished. But, um, mm. you know, it, it's all these things that, that need to be talked about that it, it's all intertwined and, and connected with each other. Um, the UBI is a terrifying prospect. Yes. And anyone who has taken the time to sit down and watch the segment of the World Economic Forum in which they discuss the UBI. Uh, if you are not absolutely terrified by the time you finish watching that that uh, discussion, that panel, um, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. you. You must be in some sort of a coma. Yeah. Because essentially what they're saying is that in order to qualify for, for the UBI, there are all sorts of stipulations that will be made. It will not be universal. You will have to comply with what those who are issuing the UBI um, insist that you comply with. And that will mean taking your vaccinations and that will mean they have control over, over what you eat and uh, what, you know, how you, how you transport yourself around and whether you vote or not, mm -hmm. right? So it's not universal. It's only universal if you comply. Now, if you, if you then, uh, so, so the UBI, of course, links in with central bank digital currency and this, uh, the central bank digital currency, uh, the, the move towards this was actually discussed by the uh, heads of the central banks when they met at uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August of 2019. And they decided on a, on a plan that was actually developed by, by BlackRock. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah but, so you know evil, what I'm talking about. Evil okay. organisation. Yeah, they basically own the world. Yeah. And so BlackRock presents this plan to the heads of the central banks saying, well, you know, um, what, what we should do is actually rather than having these, these two banking circuits, right, where you've got central banks that issue that, that issue money uh, to the retail banks and then retail banks issue money to, to you and me and to businesses and so forth. Why don't we just cut out the retail banks and, and so money will, will come directly from central banks 
So this is what a central bank digital currency is, mm. right? So, so say the the Federal Reserve in the US or uh, the um, Reserve Bank of Australia here would actually issue uh, essentially digital currency, so it's central bank digital currency, and then you and I have a digital wallet, and that's the only currency in circulation, and- right? And if if you if you watch, there's a, there's a truly terrifying grab of a. Um, um, the the head of the Bank of International Settlements, and his name has temporarily escaped my memory, but he looks like a giant toad. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one, but, but no. he's basically like he's licking his chops and saying, you know, the really cool thing about central bank digital currency, I'm paraphrasing, um, he didn't say the really cool thing, but that's what he meant. Uh, the really cool thing about central bank digital currency is that we can see transactions happening in real time and we can actually shut them down if we don't like them. He said the problem with cash is you don't know who's got a $20 bill or a 200 peso note or whatever and is using that to transact. But with central bank digital currency, uh, we can see what's happening all the time. And, it, and, and yeah, we, we can shut you down. So how will your UBI be issued? It will be issued in central bank digital currency. And if you're a bad boy, then your digital wallet gets shut off. You yeah. don't get to transact financially at all. Oh, yeah. And, and this is um, discussions that I've had with friends about um, the social credit score and ESG and everything yeah. like that. And that, um, you know, this whole um, public health response has been a way to condition us to doing that. So like um, down here in Victoria, we have to QR code into everywhere we go for the mm. quote supposedly for the purposes of contact tracing. Uh, not long ago, it came out. That can, I, can I can I pause you there for yeah, a second? Yeah. Because if you if you talk to any epidemiologist, and if you if you look at Australia's pandemic preparedness plan, which was updated in August of 2019, okay, what it says is that contact tracing is only useful in the very early stages of of a pandemic. Once once the virus is in circulation, contact tracing is useless. Pointless. Yep. So what are we doing two years into this with this ridiculous contact tracing? And it does not make any epidemiological sense. Totally agree. And um, I think they've changed the rules recently down here in Victoria where uh, it's no longer the Department of Health who does the, t- the contact tracing, it's the individual themselves. So if they get notified that they've been to a tier one spot or they come down with the Wu flu, it's their responsibility to tell their friends that, hey, you've either got to isolate or go and get the thing stuck up your nose and down your throat um, for that. So they're moving it from the department. What, what, what are the legal implications if they do not? Uh, that is a good question. Um, yeah, if, if, because I mean, to me that's really shifting, that's shifting um, legal responsibility. Yes. Yes. On, onto and 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 the the con- the potential consequences of that are truly horrifying. Absolutely, and and it's the whole thing. And um, just going back to to what I was going to going through with this, Sorry this to whole no 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 no. I mean, it, it, it's important. It needs to be discussed. Is that um, what I was going to say? Was FPOS came out and said that they were going to link a QR code, so it was going to be an eQR code to FPOS through scanning a QR code instead of using mm. your card in the machines. Um, so mm. you know we're we're bred to do that, to scan in everywhere, to go through that. We all go through 
the quote unquote that used to be self serve, but now it's the assisted checkouts because it's not self serve because you know they're useless machines. But it's getting you into that habit of doing that, and then yeah. we. I'm not sure what it's like in Queensland, but where we are down here. One door in, one door out. It's not like the old days where you could pick a door that you wanted to go into and go in that door to do your shop to start your shopping. No, everyone gets herded in one door and herded out the other door, and it's mm. all conditioning. So it's all conditioning us to go into this whole, um, you know, social credit score like that Black Mirror episode where you have to scan in for places and interactions and you know, all that. Yeah, and it's just totally, uh, totally. Uh, I'd, I'd have to say the level of, of compliance to QR code checkings and whatnot, at least here on the Gold Coast where, where I live, is um, very, very low and neither small nor businesses are, are insisting on it. And um, I uh, have comments about that but um, with the Andrews regime's bills coming in, I mm. have no protection from self-incrimination so I'm not going to say yep. anything more about that. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll leave listeners to their own imaginations yes. on so, that, yeah. Um, <laughs> and absolutely. So um, if, if we can go back to this whole um, thing of the woo flu, um, you've said that it wasn't a public health response. Now, I totally agree with that and... Um, with the numbers of, uh, you know, I think we had, uh, I think it was a 1,000 today, um, it was 1,400 yesterday. I mean, and with a 1.1% 1, 1. 1% fatality rate, though, of the people who are getting tested, uh, yesterday was around 1.8% of people who tested came back with a positive result, um, mm. not saying that mm. they're symptomatic. Um, now, understanding you're not an epidemiologist or anything like that, though, at what point does it, does this pandemic end and this become endemic? Because I think if there's 1,500 cases like there was yesterday, then that tends to be that it's endemic in the community. So let's just live with it. Let's get out of the state of emergency and just deal with it, considering that there's such a low fatality rate, the response tends to be way over the top uh, mm. to the... Uh, Let's say to to the risk, and I'm not going to say about it, keeping people safe. It lacks proportionality. Safe. Yes, yes, absolutely. It lacks proportionality. So I'd refer you and 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 your listeners to the Australian Health Management Plan for Pandemic Influenza, um, and you can find this on the uh, Commonwealth Department of, of Health's website. It's very easy. You just type in Australian Health Management Plan for Pandemic Influenza. And there are a, a, a number of uh, very important elements of this. It's like a 232-page document, right? But some of the, the really key elements are they have, you know, for instance, an ethical framework. And I'm going to read you out some of the some of the key statements here. So, uh, ethical framework uh, point point to individual liberty, ensuring that the rights of the individual are upheld as much as possible. Privacy and confidentiality of individuals is important and should be protected. Under extraordinary conditions during a pandemic, it may be necessary for some elements to be overwritten to protect others. Hold that thought. There's another section I want to read to you in a sec. Proportionality. Ensuring that measures taken are proportional to the threat. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, reciprocity. Ensuring that when individuals are asked to take measures or perform duties for the benefit of society as a whole, their acts are appropriately recognised and legitimate need associated with these acts are uh, legitimate that should be needs, associated with these acts are met where possible. Stewardship, that leaders strive to make good decisions based on best available evidence. Trust, that health decision makers strive to communicate in a timely and transparent manner to the public and those within the health system. 
<laughs> None of those provisions, no, nothing in that ethical framework has been, uh, there, there, is, there is no congruence between that ethical framework and anything that has been done in Victoria or indeed yep. in the other states. In terms of proportionality, there, the, the, uh, so under proportionate response, which is actually the next section of this, um, pandemic impact, this is section 2.7.1, the level of impact that the pandemic has on the Australian community will depend on a number of factors. The clinical severity of the disease will affect the number of people, blah, 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 blah. Um, as clinical severity increases, the visibility of the disease is likely to increase, transmissibility, transmissibility capacity of the health system, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, here's how they rank um, clinical severity. So a disease that is ranked as, 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 as severe, let, let, let's go in, in the sort of reverse order. A disease that is ranked as severe is categorised as one that affects, you know, younger, healthy people. Whereas the disease that is classified as, as mild is one that primarily affects elderly people or those or younger people who are already ill. So by that definition, SARS-CoV-2 is clearly a clinically mild disease. The uh, proportion of people who are made seriously ill by infection with this disease who are in younger age groups is so negligible that you are, you know, more likely to be injured in a car accident or I don't know. Uh, suffer alcohol poisoning if you have a big night on a you know mm. Saturday night or whatever the heck else. Um, it is a, a vanishingly small risk to to younger people. The media beat ups notwithstanding. Um, now, in terms of capacity of the health system, our health system has had close on two years to to gear up so that they they have enough you know ICU beds and and nursing staff and all the rest of it. I I can tell you you know last night there was a meeting. Uh, that was intended to send a message to Gold Coast City Council. Um, only only one councillor actually turned up, an independent. So so the mayor did not turn up. None of the Liberal Party councillors who who hold power in, in Gold Coast City Council, none of them turned up, nor did Labor. One independent councillor turned up. Now, at that meeting, a nurse uh, whistleblower spoke. So she has worked in uh, Gold Coast hospitals throughout the entire pandemic. Would you like to guess... How many people here on the Gold Coast, population roughly 600,000, would you like to guess how many people have been hospitalised for, for COVID-19 since the outbreak of the, of, of, of the pandemic? Since March last year? Since March of last year. 600,000 people. How many have, have ended up in hospital? I'm inclined to, if, if current figures are anything to go by, I'd probably say around five to ten. Six. Six. Six people have ended up in hospital, she said. All of them were clinically mild, mild to moderate. <laughs> At most, they required oxygen. Um, the, the ICU wards that have been set up in, uh, so there are, there's uh, Gold Coast um, University Hospital, which is affiliated with Griffith University, mm. and then there's um, uh, Rabina Hospital, which is quite small. So Gold Coast City Hospital had a dedicated ICU set up for the expected surge of COVID-19 patients, and it's been mothballed. Mm. No one's been in there. Now, meantime, they're getting thousands of admissions of people who've been injured by the experimental vaccines, most of them or a good proportion of them, younger people. Yeah. And, um, you know, last year, um, Stanman Andrews um, got out and said he was going to spend $1.3 billion getting more uh, 4,000 ICU um, beds and spaces. Um, it was going to take over the... Uh, exhibition buildings, if it came to it and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. now denies that or said, 
uh, and everything like that. Yet all of a sudden, um, our health system can't cope because I think we've got a capacity of, I think ICUs of an active capacity of I think of about four hundred and seventy or four hundred and forty, um, mm. and I think today that said there was forty nine in ICU um, and all that. But I mean, it, it it just doesn't sit right. When, you know, we're told to trust the science. We know there's no science in any of the decisions um, that have been no. made. Zero. Um, it's anti-science. And, yes, and I mean, and talking about anti-science is that um, I wanted to, um, you know, your thoughts, obviously not speaking on behalf of any um, medical community or, or anything like that, just your personal thoughts. Why has there been obsession with demonising the horse dewormer and yet not... Um, complaining about everyone drinking um, engine fluid, uh, engine coolant, or hydrogen hydroxide. Mm. It's pretty. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I know you've got to In, follow the money. Yeah. Well. Okay. So, what what have we got with with ivermectin? Uh, ivermectin has been off patent for a number of years. Now, let's let's actually, you know, really, really tell the story of ivermectin. Ivermectin was discovered in, I believe it was the 1970s, and it, it, it's the first uses that it was put to regarded uh, parasitic disease. Mm. Um, the two scientists who developed it, of course, won the Nobel Prize for its development in, I believe it was 2015. Mm -hmm. Mm. There have been 3.9 billion doses of ivermectin distributed uh, since since it was first, you know, developed as a as a as a drug. Yes, it's used for horses and chickens and various other animals, but it also is issued to humans. So 3.9 billion doses are distributed to humans. Its safety profile is so exceptional that. In the time since it was approved for human use, which, if memory serves, was 1986, there have been uh, 16 adverse event reports to uh, Vigibase, which is WHO's uh, sort of you know, pharmacovigilance database. Mm. So this is an exceptionally, exceptionally safe uh, drug. It's actually derived from soil bacteria, uh, which is which is pretty darn interesting given mm. the level of interest in in uh, the microbiome, the human microbiome, soil microbiome, gut microbiome. So um, that's ivermectin. Now, while it was initially developed as a parasitic, it, it does have antiviral effects. It has activity against a, a wide variety of, of viruses. And there are now, I'm just checking to see uh, what the latest on, on C19 early is for ivermectin, but uh, let's see if there's been a new study published. Okay, so 67 uh, controlled studies of ivermectin in COVID-19, 31 of these are randomised controlled trials. There's a 66% improvement for, for early treatment. And uh, it's also very useful for, for prophylaxis or prevention, yeah, prevention yeah. okay? So this is a, an incredibly safe and, and quite highly effective drug. So let me see, 85% improvement in 15 prophylaxis trials. So that, is, that basically means an 85% reduction in the risk of people getting COVID-19 if they're taking a dose of ivermectin, say, on a weekly basis as a, as a preventive. That's better than the 66. series of jabs. Uh, way better. Yeah. Yep. 66%. Um, and, and that's actual prevention of, of infection, which mm. the jabs are pretty useless at, as mm. a matter of fact. Um, 
in terms of early treatment, oh, that's just gone off my screen again. So there's roughly a 66% improvement in early treatment. Let's have a look at this. Uh, sorry, C19 early. C19early.com, by the way, is, is a really good place for listeners to go to if they want to find out, you know, what's, what's happening um, in, in terms of the development of medications, not just medications, but also uh, things like vitamin D and curcumin and... Um, uh, even nigella, which is black seed, black cumin seed. Mm. Um, these are these are like in in terms of the the non drug treatments like curcumin and nigella, the trials are much smaller. However, uh, the degree of improvement that's been seen with these admittedly smaller trials is quite dramatic. So we've got a sixty six percent improvement in twenty nine early treatment trials, a thirty eight percent improvement in twenty three late treatment trials, and a fifty eight percent improvement in twenty eight mortality trials. So out of the 31 randomised controlled trials, there's a 57% improvement. And it's absolutely stunning, yeah. the effectiveness of ivermectin. And really, really stunning. This is a safe, ridiculously cheap medication. And, you know, that's one of the things that is, um, you know, obviously indicates that this isn't public health because, I mean, um, you know, our chief um, health officer has gone and literally called it the horse dewormer, followed th that corporate narrative about it. Yes. And yet... It is a corporate narrative. Yeah. Um, yes. um, I can't remember what his name is. Um, Joe Rogan. No, 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 no. Um, the Australian politician, Corey, Corey, someone, I've forgotten what his surname is. Oh, um, you mean Craig Kelly? No, 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 not Craig Kelly. No. Um, um, he had a Conservative Party and then he left Parliament and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, oh, Corey Bernardi. That's him. That's him. Yep. He, he put out an email um, and um, a couple of tweets, I think it was, about the kit that the WHO was giving that um, region in India that had such a phenomenally high. Um, Wu flu rate, and then part of that cocktail yep. was vitamin yeah. D. You're, you're talking about Uttar Pradesh now. Yes. Now it's important to note that the WHO was not involved in the distribution of that kit. Okay, they, my they publicised. Yeah, you know this is a really important story to tell. Um, the so so Uttar Pradesh, which is a, a state in the north of of India, it's very uh, it has very I think its population is is 220 million. So it's like an entire country. It's a very poor state. It's a rural state. Uh, obviously, its healthcare facilities are not fantastic. Um, low levels of literacy. Now, of course, they couldn't afford expensive medications or injections or whatever have you. So what happened was local health authorities basically went door to door with, you know, a little little baggie, a little Ziploc of um, ivermectin and, you know, uh, an antibiotic and some vitamin D and, and, and various other um, um, simple, cheap, you know, uh, not patented medications, and very rapidly, Uttar Pradesh basically um, ended the, the the pandemic of COVID nineteen in this densely populated, uh, really really poor state. Now the WHO uh, congratulated them on, on on their efforts, but when the WHO was distributing news of, of how Uttar Pradesh had done it, they actually left ivermectin off the list of medications that that had been distributed to to the to these um, to these poor, you know, mostly illiterate farmers and, and peasants. The Indian Bar Association 
has actually filed a legal case against Sumia Swaminathan, who is the uh, chief uh, chief um, scientific officer of the WHO. She's Indian herself. So the Indian Bar Association has actually filed legal proceedings, um, essentially, well, in, indicting her for murder by uh, for, for discouraging the Indian government from uh, recommending ivermectin as, as a treatment. So the Indian national government has taken ivermectin off their approved list of medications or this sort of, you know, list of medications to, to use for, for treating COVID-19. Now, um, India's, India's sort of federal system is such that states have a lot of uh, autonomy in terms of how they how they run their state's business. And so just like in the US, you, you see a big difference between uh, various states as to how they've handled this. It's the same in India. So there are numerous states that followed Uttar Pradesh's lead and began using ivermectin as prophylaxis and early treatment. And their rates of COVID-19 have fallen through the floor. And then there are other states like Kerala, which is a, a much smaller state in terms of population, and they have not used ivermectin, and their rates of COVID-19 are still really high. Oh, man. So it's a fascinating, it fascinating story with many twists and, and, and turns. And, and, of course, you don't find out about this through the corporate media yeah. because they don't want you to know that, that these desperately poor states or regions of the world are getting this, this, this pandemic under control. I mean, with, with the emergence of the, of the Omicron variant, um, presumably out of Africa, although it probably didn't come from Africa, and this is what the South Africans are jumping up and down about. They're saying, hang on a minute, we, we just identified this variant. It doesn't mean it came from yeah. here. Like in the meantime, in the meantime, the Omicron variant has been identified in Belgium, uh, Germany, the UK, Hong Kong, and here in Australia, all, all found, mind you, in travellers who, mm. by definition, have been vaccinated. The four cases that were identified in Botswana, um, oh, mild, mind you, but all found in fully vaccinated people, mm. as the Botswana government uh, put out in a press release. So... Uh, so overall, Afri the, it, it, obviously Africa is comprised of many countries, but overall, 6% of Africans have, have um, had a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, if you look at, at, at a, you know, a map showing prevalence of COVID-19 or identification of cases throughout the, throughout the globe, you'll see that Africa has the lowest rates of COVID-19 with 6% of the, of the continent's population having had the jab. Okay. Now... Just quickly on that one, now um, I've shared my thoughts on why we've responded to it um, and just your personal one, so not going to hold you, you know, anything like that and, hope, you know, if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. Um, your thoughts on the government response, is that because uh, the governments are inherently racist in what they're doing? Is it fear of... Um, Ebola, which anything comes from South Africa, the first thing people think of is, is Ebola, or is it that um, the powers that be know that this came from a lab and that we need to be watching out for variants because uh, it, you know, it doesn't behave like a normal respiratory virus which gets weaker, though more infectious as it goes because respiratory viruses don't want to kill the host, they want to keep breeding, which is why mm. the more that they keep the host asymptomatic, the more likely the virus is to spread, whereas if the, if the host becomes symptomatic and then stays at home, the virus can't spread. So, 
Yeah, I know yeah, that that, was... that's exactly right. It, it, it's called Muller's Ratchet, and it's 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 not an immutable law, but but it's a you know it's a generally applicable law that the the way that a respiratory virus survives, and and a virus's only you know point in life is is to replicate itself, right? It doesn't sort of stay up all night wondering how how it can make you sick or, or mm. kill you. And and you're you're exactly correct. In the case of a respiratory virus, the way that it that it's best going to be able to survive is to become more transmissible but less virulent. In other words, more capable of spread but but less less capable of making you sick. And this is exactly what the South African doctor, uh, who you might have seen the press conference mm. that, that she gave, where she said, "Look, I've treated these people and they're barely sick. Like they 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 just you know they have some muscle aches and pains and they feel tired, and, and other than that, they're totally fine. And no one's needed oxygen and no one's gone to the hospital. We're just managing." them at home and they're they're perfectly fine and why why the heck is everyone losing their their heads over this so back to your question about why why the hype over over omicron and i think it's really really important to point out that omicron was was designated by the who as being a variant of concern Mm. And so they had this list of variants, right? And there, viruses viruses mutate. It's what they do. And mRNA virus, uh, sorry, RNA viruses, I should say, which includes SARS-CoV-2, they mutate at a, at a faster rate than DNA viruses. Although in general, coronaviruses mutate a little less slowly than other RNA viruses. But let's set that aside. Viruses mutate because it's what they do. Now, most of those mutations are actually not beneficial to the survival of the virus, and so. Uh, the virus particles that have those mutations will stop replicating and die out. Uh, some of those uh, some of those mutations will provide advantages to the virus in certain circumstances. And so what what we're seeing is the um, dominance of the delta variant, which which uh, is the most dominant variant in Australia and really you know throughout most of the world. The dominance of the delta variant occurs uh, once populations get to around about twenty five percent vaccination rates because Delta replicates more, or Delta Delta has an advantage in um, vaccinated populations because the mutations in, in the Delta variant are primarily in the spike protein, and the antibodies produced through through the injections uh, aren't a particularly good match for the Delta. So Delta is what's called an immune escape variant. That is, the, the Delta variant, it wasn't created by the injections, but the injections create an ideal environment for Delta to proliferate. Okay, so the Omicron, there is absolutely no reason to designate Omicron as a variant of concern. Okay, um, a variant of concern is like, like that designation is given to a variant that you know demonstrates certain properties, including increased transmissibility, increased spread, uh, increased virulence. And neither of those have been demonstrated uh, by Omicron. In, in fact, it is so heavily mutated that it's quite likely that, that um, there's a Russian scientist who works at the Gamalaya Institute, um, which developed the, the Russian uh, Sputnik V um, vaccine. Uh, this Russian scientist has been quoted as saying that this could end the pandemic because it's so mutated that this virus is, is going to sort of burn itself out. Okay, so why did the WHO designate Omicron as a variant of concern when there's absolutely no evidence for, for certainly for increased virulence. If anything, it's the opposite. It appears to be less virulent. We don't even have evidence of greater transmissibility. So this is a political move on the part of the WHO. And coincidentally or not, it occurs at a time where Europe is erupting in protests 
People are out on the streets in, in Austria, in Belgium, in Slovenia, the Czech Republic, uh, in Germany, in the UK. Really? People, but, oh, you don't, don't see this on the mainstream oh. media. Oh. But, but the, the protests have been absolutely massive. Oh. Um, every, every week in France there are protests and tens if not hundreds of thousands of people are turning up there. When compulsory vaccination w- was announced in, in Austria, which, as you probably know, is going into a hard lockdown, mm-hmm. uh, there, there, were, there were people out on the streets. You know, I, 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 I do not remember the exact numbers, but if memory serves me correctly, it was about 400,000 people just turned up in, you know, uh, to, to protest uh, outside the, uh, the Austrian um, parliament. So, so, you know, people are getting really, really fed up. They, they have been told that the way to end the pandemic is to take your jabs and the way to end the pandemic is to lock down and the way to end the pandemic is to uh, contact trace and all the rest of it. It is absolutely abundantly clear none of this is working. The US has had more COVID-19 deaths this year mm. than it did last year mm-hmm. when there were no vaccines. Okay, more deaths this year. But what happened to the the ticking death counter that CNN had, uh, um, um, you know, on the bottom of the screen on their Chiron there? Yeah, that suddenly disappeared when when Trump went out and Biden came in. Now, let me make this clear. I'm no I'm no fan of Donald Trump. He's just another, you know, he's just another schmuck on the make Mm. as far as I can see. But, you know, why, why was the death count so prominently featured during his presidency and then CNN takes it off, and, and not just CNN but all the other sort of left-leaning um, uh, networks took that death counter off their, off their screen, and yet there have been more COVID-19 deaths during the Biden presidency than during the Trump presidency. Yep. Yep. With, with the population, you know, uh, two-thirds vaccinated, mm. okay, and now they're pushing it onto the kids. Oh. The people have had enough of this. They're recognising that, that nothing that they were told has worked out and they have had enough. And when it comes to governments forcing these jabs on their kids, like many of them put up with it for themselves, they put up with it to, you know, to keep their jobs and keep food on the table and a roof over their heads, and then when the government comes for their kids, like that's it. It's, it's pitch books on the street. These people have had enough. And then, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, appears this Omicron variant, and it's a variant of concern. Really, why is it a variant of concern when nothing, next to nothing, is known about it except anecdotally, it appears to be making people less sick. And and oh, yeah, it, it's the thing. Now, talk. Have, have you got time to to keep going? I do indeed. Okay. All right. Um, something that I did want to talk about that I know we've spoken about it. Um, when I first reached out to you um, and I want to tie it into this whole thing about coming after our kids and um, it, it's something that I made it clear to my son that that's why I've taken the stand that I have because I don't want them coming after him and I have to take mm. a stand and say, no, it stops. Um, mm. So it's the thing is what are these series of therapeutics doing to people? What are they going to do to our children when... You have a look at the data. I mean, looking at 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 the, the data that's available, stuff the science because, you know, the science has been politicised. You have a look at what has happened in lockdown and everything like that. All that has been far more dangerous to our children than what 
even the, the Delta variant or even the, the first Alpha variant was. Um, and, you know, we've had two years of, of lost schooling, two years of lost social interaction with our kids, two years of being confined to our, uh, their houses. Mm-hmm. Yes, in Victoria we've been let out and not able to do stuff and, and things like that. But, you know, two years of that and now – um, our um, supreme leader has turned around and said he hopes to have um, a roll out a mandate for five to twelve year olds to be jabbed by next before school starts next year. Um, yes. And I know, and I got the termin- terminology wrong when I spoke to you about it, and I probably did in the other episode of my podcast where I talked about it. Well, the toll like receptors um, mm. that that is, and and you know, there's the whole. Um, soccer players killing over when they're playing soccer yeah. and and things like that and that's all stuff that we've never seen before and there's been a couple of soccer players come out on on social media and say of the you know they're re- obviously retired and they've been a decade or so out of the game out of all those times that they were playing they never saw this happen and yet all of mm. a sudden the medical fraternity is saying oh no that's normal um. Yeah, um, this is this is an extreme. I mean, there there has been so much gaslighting, and this is one of the more extreme examples of that of that gaslighting. This notion that oh, you know, there's always been athletes keeling over in the middle of a soccer game. So if if you go back and look at the the, the history of soccer and football and these various other competitive sports, people who are sort of you know fans or aficionados of these various sports, they they can they can tell you. Uh, about the specific incidents when you know so and so who turned out to have a congenital heart defect killed over on the on the soccer field or whatever like these events were so rare that people who follow these sports can tell you the name of the person and the the very game that it took place in okay that's how rare these events are they really stand out in people's memory now there was a, a german television network i presume an independent one that put together a sort of compilation i think they came up with 67 different um uh, sort of grabs of, of news items and so forth of athletes, uh, mostly mostly football players, but some you know basketball, uh, some other some players for other sports, who suffered heart attacks, uh, you know collapsed on 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 the field, um, you know had to be resuscitated. This is this is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, Jessica Rose and Peter McCulloch have done an analysis of the VAERS data, uh, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System in the US, which is badly underreported. And they've calculated that the uh, the rate of myocarditis, so inflammation of the heart muscle, in um, children aged 15 to 17 who've received the, the jab is is 20 times above baseline. Now, when you take into account the, the underreporting factor, it, it could be as high as 1,000 times. Uh, above baseline, right? So a thousand times the likelihood uh, without the uh, of getting myocarditis that, that would exist without the jabs. So this is this is absolutely catastrophic. Now, um, for those people who who have heard this complete tripe that is even being promoted by uh, by by doctors, my my husband happened to catch a uh, a news item on on the ABC where a pediatrician was was dismissing these these incidents of myocarditis as being mild there is no such thing as a mild myocarditis mm. these these young people are being admitted to hospital with troponin levels, so troponin being a marker of damage to the heart muscle that are you know five or ten times as high as what would be seen in a heart attack 
Now, when you get that much degree, so, so troponin, again, is a marker of actual damage to, to the myocardium, the heart muscle. When that myocardium dies, and that's what the troponin means, particularly high levels, when that dies, that muscle never grows back. It is replaced with scar tissue. So for the rest of their life, this person has a weakened segment of their heart muscle. So we don't know how many of these people are going to get heart failure in the next couple of years. What we do know is that these, these kids, many of whom are athletes, many of whom are you know, people who are competitive tennis players, football players or track athletes or whatever, they now have to rest in bed for the next six months. They can't, they're on a cocktail of medications to keep their heart rate and their blood pressure down and to assist their, their, their heart in, in you know, maintaining its capacity to pump blood. This is absolutely catastrophic. And we're doing this in an age group that has a statistically zero risk of death from, from uh, death of COVID mm. and an extremely minimal risk of anything more serious than you know, a couple of days of, of, of fatigue and a, and a bad headache and a cough. Right. So when, when in history have we ever used children as a human shield to protect the elderly? Because that's what yep. we're being told. We're being told that the kids need to be jabbed because, A, uh, we need to protect the kids against COVID. Well, that's, that's a completely specious, specious argument because the kids don't get COVID uh, aside from, you know, a runny nose and, and a couple of days of fatigue. Mm. And then um, when that one fails, the second reason is, oh, well, kids are a vector of transmission of this virus. Actually, no, they're not. Sweden kept their schools open. So kids under the, up to the age of 17 were allowed to, to continue in school in Sweden throughout the entire pandemic. They did not document any cases of spread of the virus um, within schools, like between students or from students to teachers. So, so the notion that, that children are a vector for, for spread is, is completely ridiculous. And then uh, the, the notion that we need to jab the kids so that they don't make their grandparents sick, what? So we're going to risk kids suffering heart failure so that they don't give granny COVID? Mm, yeah. Hang on. I thought granny's injection was supposed to protect her against COVID. But, but no, we're, we're going to sacrifice our children to protect the elderly? Yeah. What what civilization does that? It's not worthy of the name civilization. This yeah. is child sacrifice. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. It's like you're driving down the street and my seatbelt won't work if you don't have yours on. It's just like Yeah, but but it's more than that. It's like we're driving down the street and like in order for you to stay safe in your car, um, you, you have to run over my kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you're not running over my kid to keep yourself safe. So um and why why has the science ignored natural immunity? Because, and going back to this thing, um, Supreme Leader Andrews said on one of his presses yesterday was that, um, I think it must have been The Age did a poll or some crap like that, um, which The Age is one of those very, very left-leaning, um, I think it's almost mm. flat, I don't think it leans anymore. Um, <laughs> it's a, collapsed. Yeah, a poll <laughs> on people and, and parents and they've said, you know, he turned around and said that parents don't want their kids getting sick. Now, you know, my son's school age and he's sick every month when he was going to school. Mm. They pick up all sorts of crap, come to school, yes. you know, bring it home. Um, you know, I remember growing up uh, the chicken pox parties because that was the thing that you wanted to do and 
There was Get no chicken pox over and done with yes. while while kids are young and yes. and they're just going to have a rash and be spotty and have a bit of a fever yes. for a few days and then they're immune to, to chicken pox for the rest of their life and it prevents them from getting chicken pox at an older age when they're more likely to have complications. Yes, um, indeed, indeed. Now, um, and this, uh, sorry, I, I realised that I didn't address your your question about the the toll-like receptors and oh, what no, is no, it no, doing that was, to kids. Yeah, that was yeah. more about what it was. Um, I mean, the, the whole, I think the whole myocarditis was was enough and. and and everything like uh, that. But. Yeah, but 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 just very very briefly, what what you do when you give the give kids these injections is you're actually um, interfering with their capacity to develop a a broad uh, and and permanent or also durable and robust immune response to SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so vaccine induced immunity is a very very poor substitute for natural immunity. And what we should have done and what the uh, what the three um, uh, scientists and who, who uh, collaborated on the Great Barrington Declaration, so Sanetra Gupta, Martin Kuldorf and, and Jay Bhattacharya from Oxford, um, Stanford and, and, and Harvard respectively, um, I might have got that mixed up in order. But anyway, they're, they're from really prestigious universities, okay? So they put out the Great Barrington Declaration last year saying here's what we ought to do. We ought to protect the elderly, very vigorously protect the elderly, um, make sure that those in nursing homes are uh, protected against the, the, the inrush of the virus, but that everyone else needs to be freed up to go and live their lives because that is the way that we build, build herd immunity. Herd immunity cannot, cannot, I can't stress this enough, you cannot build herd immunity using these jabs because they don't prevent infection, they don't prevent transmission. They're what are known as non-sterilising vaccines. They're not vaccines at all, mm. but they don't sterilise, as in they don't prevent infection, they don't prevent transmission. You cannot, cannot get herd immunity out of jabbing the population with these shots. How you build herd immunity is exactly what you were talking about before with reference to the chickenpox parties. Now, I'm not suggesting that people have COVID parties. What I am suggesting is that particularly as, as the, the virus mutates to become less virulent and more transmissible, if you just send your kid to school and to soccer practice and, and, and to a party, they're going to come in contact with this virus and they will develop a robust and durable and, and broad immune response, not just to the variant that they're, that they're exposed to at that, um, you know, school or, or sporting event or whatever have you, but, but to subsequent variants as well. And, and in doing so, that, that is how we end up protecting the vulnerable, by allowing the young, the healthy, those, those with a well-functioning immune system to come in contact with this virus and therefore become uh, like, a, like a wall that, that prevents the, the virus from gaining traction. If it can't infect someone who's already had the virus, then, then that person can't pass it on. The virus hits, it hits a dead end. Now, one thing about that that um, ha has really got me going um, about this is that the whole doom and gloom about this this virus. Um, now, there, there was something that was published a study in the US on hospitalisation and they found that the, the third biggest indicator was, um, I can't remember how they defined it, but, you know, paraphrasing it using my my terminology, was was the, the lack of a positive mental attitude about it because mm -hmm. the, the, they went through all these people and found out whatever it was and um, there were these people in, in, this, uh, in this study that genuinely believed that once they got the bug, 
that they'd end up in hospital. So, of course, they created their own mm. self-fulfilling prophecy by having it and going to hospital rather than having the, you know, the, the belief that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it, it's going to happen to everyone, but, you know, it, you've got a 98% survival rate. Um, um, it's actually higher than 98%. I mean, it does vary from age group to age hmm. group, but overall, the, the, like, if you look at the survival uh, rate in totality, it's, it's uh, according to John Unidas's calculations, it's 99.76%. Now, in the case of younger people, it's 99.9999, you know, several, hmm. several nines, and then you finally end up with some numbers that aren't nines. Um, as, you, as you go up the, uh, the scale in terms of age, the survival survivability decreases. And that's true of any respiratory virus. I mean, there's a reason why um, influenza and and pneumonia are known as the old man's friend. Um, Old man's friend being, you know, people get to a certain age in life and they've kind of had enough. And uh, every, every every winter, particularly, you know, the further you move away from the poles, the harsher the winter gets. Um, you you see this spike in, in winter deaths. A lot of them are due to pneumonia as, as a result of, you know, it could be influenza, it could be another coronavirus, it could be anything. But uh, these, these deaths are, you might say, kinder deaths than some of the nastier ways that people can go as they get older. Mm. That's why, you know, that's why um, doctors have called pneumonia the old man's friend. So, yeah, survivability decreases as people get older. Well, yeah, older people die at a higher rate than younger people. Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> like newsflash. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when you look at you look at the median age of death of COVID-19 in Australia, it's actually higher than than um, than life expectancy. Yep. Yep. So the median age of age of death, I believe last time I checked it was 84. Yep. And life expectancy in Australia is 82. Mm. And we've seen that throughout throughout the entire world, actually. The, the median age of death of COVID-19 is higher than average life expectancy, certainly in every country that I've, you know, where, where I've seen the figures for it. Mm. Um, so now, one thing with that, um, and I'm probably jumping onto a whole different road that we're going to go down, but two things I want to we're talk about. We're going to do a part two. <laughs> I, I think we might have to. Um, are, are you happy to do a, a part two? 100%. Okay. Um, all right, because, I mean, the things that I want to talk about in part two is obviously the nanoparticles, um, not getting conspiracy theories, but, you know, there are nano, nanoparticles in these um, therapeutics. They've acknowledged that um, and, and all that sort of stuff. So mm. I want to talk about yeah. that, why the public health response has been the jabs, not get off your backside, exercise, go outside, get your vitamin D and all that sort of stuff, um, and then anything else that, that pops in um with that so um okay what i might do is i'll leave this episode here and then we'll come back to a part two later on that sounds like a very good plan because there's there's so much of what you've just discussed so let's do it justice (laughs) hey all right we'll do part two later on all right thanks for joining me all right thank you so much for inviting me on and that brings to an end the first part of uh, at least two, maybe three, if not more, uh, episodes that I'm doing with Robin. Um, hope you do like it um, and um, we'll tune in for the rest of them. Uh, for any of the things that we discussed, there will be a whole lot of information on the show notes that you will find at the fifth.estate forward slash episode 17. Um, so, yeah, any, anything that's referenced there. From what I can find the show note uh, references for, I'll include in the show notes. There'll also be the social media links for Robin and everything like that uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I hope you hope you enjoyed it um, and thank you for listening and I look forward to having you join me on the next one. Bye for now.